Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. I want to thank everybody for joining today's TMC Connect web broadcast entitled Be Proactive in Addressing Liquidity and Paycheck Protection Program Challenges. I've got some great discussion leaders for today's call from our preferred partner network here at TMC to help uh, lead the discussion here. Um, So in front of introducing our discussion leaders, I just want to go through a couple quick housekeeping items for today's call. I want to remind our attendees to check out the Mortgage Collaborative uh, website where you can view um, our upcoming schedule of sessions for uh, TMC Connect on the TMC Connect specific page as well as the member event calendar pages. Um, And this will be our first of 10 total sessions taking place this week, first of three this afternoon. So I encourage our attendees to keep checking in as we're going to be continually adding new sessions, uh, really based off the feedback from our members and our preferred partners, uh, just to keep these sessions and the content that comes with them as timely as possible. All right. So joining into today's discussion, as I mentioned, we've got three distinguished uh, leaders for today's call from TMC's preferred partner network. First off, we have audit partner at Audit Aquavella, uh, Chiarelli, and Schuster, also known as ACS within the network. Uh, Paul Chiarelli. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, I like the picture you picked better than the way I look right now with my hair, but, you know, we'll let that go. <laughs> Everybody's got the COVID cut going, but looking good regardless. <laughs> <laughs> well, also joining us is uh, Mortgage Banking Practice Group Chair at Johnston Thomas, the uh, law provider within the Mortgage Collaborative, James Brody. How you doing, James? James may be on mute, so I'm sure he sends his regard. Uh, then also leading our discussion today from ACS is <laughs> Sorry audit about that. accounting partner, <laughs> Santo Chiarelli. No worries, James. Hey, Santo, how you doing? Doing well, thanks. Uh, hope everyone is doing well. And uh, I have my... Uh, my quarantine beard working right now, so I look a little different than in the picture, but we're all, we're all improvising. <laughs> oh, that's the truth. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate uh, the time that each of you have taken out to help lead today's discussion, uh, really for the benefit of our members at TMC, uh, not lost on us, you know, how valuable your time is. So thank you at the onset. And on that note, let's jump right into today's discussion. So I'm going to turn things over to Paul to kind of kick it off here. Uh, Paul, floor is yours. Okay, so obviously with what's going on, a lot of my clients are asking about forbearances, um, the PTAP, um, you know, and what's the process for this and overall how will all of this look on the financial statements. You know, you've seen how Q1 looked for a majority of our clients with how the MBS market was at 331. It didn't look good. Um, but obviously going now to 630, there may be different things in play as it looks like the MBS market kind of came back. So the first thing is a lot of my clients, when it comes to minimizing forbearance requests, um, you know, and keeping the advances at a low level, you know, they're being selective on the MSRs that are being retained. Um, they're not doing 100% of their loans. Um, in certain instances, they are leaving uh, you know, certain loans off their rate sheets, maybe low FICOs, high TTIs. Um, you know, the reason for this is you don't want to have high-risk loans in your portfolio. By having that, not only will it impact your DQPs, and, you know, who, you know, we'll have to see how Ginny May will look at that, 
but it will also go ahead and, you know, increase, you know, your advances out and obviously more, most importantly, will be impacting your cash flows. So I, I think the, the first priority that most of my clients I see are doing are being selective on what they are retaining. Um, you know, the other thing that they're doing is they are staying on top of borrowers. They are monitoring their portfolio. If they see that borrowers are not paying in their normal time periods, um, are loans eligible to be modified? What, what's the, you know, every borrower may have its own situation. Is that borrower, you know, obviously for those who have billions of dollars in portfolios, they're, you know, it's not like you can track every single borrower, but they do their analytics. They, you know, they, they scope out certain borrowers, whatever criteria is being met, and they contact them. Is there anything that they can do to avoid a forbearance request to help them out with that cash flow? Um, whether it's through a modification or such, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Um, obviously not my first choice to do a modification because you may be kind of, for better terms, kicking the can down the road if they're going to go into foreclosure um, forbearance now, if this continues to drag out, how long will that play? Or, you know, how long will this play into fact, uh, play into play? But it's something to consider. Um, you know, moving on to uh, the PTAP is, we were, uh, you know, I had the luxury of speaking to people at Ginny May and really got a good handle on how they are looking at this. Um, I, when I was looking at the numbers last early last week, it looks like that not a lot of IMBs have applied for it yet. Um, I think the number, if I read it correctly, was eight. Um, I don't know if it's increased since then, but there is a little bit of a process. And I think there are some key points that I found that I think are good to note um, for anybody that may be looking to go down this route. Uh, the first and most important thing is that it's really supposed to be a last resort, that you have went through all possible other areas of financing to obtain you know, funding. It's not meant as a kind of commercial line of credit. Um, you know, Ginny, it is truly a last resort scenario. And uh, Ginny, every conversation that I've had with Ginny May, that, that word has came up, come up a lot, um, is that it's a last resort. There are you know, if you go to Ginny Mae's website, there are certain documents that have to be kind of filled out. But the one thing I did get, the two, a couple of big points that I did notice is, number one, they are looking at this. Uh, it's not a checklist uh, format. They're not checking every box to see if you meet it. They are looking at every, you know, the idea is that they will look at every banker on an individual basis. Um, the first and foremost thing is you got to prove that you need it. Um, you know, show proof that it is, whether it's in memo showing, you know, biggest thing is cash flow projections, cash flow models um, to show that this is going to be that you are going to be you are going to need this and that you have no other areas of funding for these advances. Um, the eligible advances um, is, you know, principal and interest is, is first and foremost that that's what they're really you know, advancing on. It's not really used to cover any other operational or servicing cost uh, during this process. So it, it, they're really focusing on the P&I. And, you know, you have to apply for it by the fifth or the sixth of the month that you need it. Um, with that being said, if you do get approved, they will put the money right into your custodial account. It does not go into your operating accounts um, to further that they want it only to be used for P&I. Um, the, uh, one thing to, you know, one other thing that they mentioned is that, you know, the, this is all subordinated. The government gets paid back first. Um, if the loan goes to term, 
three months will just get added on to the end of that term. But if the loan pays off, they get paid back first uh, of what they've advanced. Out on a loan, if, the, if they see that loans have been transferred, uh, servicing has been transferred, they, are, they will be expecting repayment um, if you are no longer servicing those loans. Um, something definitely uh, to keep in mind. They are looking at it from a commercial financing standpoint in the sense of how they're going to treat the applicants and such. Um, there is no checklist. They are going to evaluate everything on a banker by banker basis. One question that did come up, and I'm assuming that probably for majority uh, of our clients I know and maybe majority people on this call is, uh, you know, the one thing that the, Ginny may mention is that, you know, you, they don't want to give you the money and then all of a sudden, you know, shareholders or management takes out big salaries and there's a lot of money coming out of the company. One question that got posed, and I think it's a, a, val a good question, is what about S-Corp distributions to pay your taxes? If you are an S-Corporation, you may take a distribution out to pay your estimated tax payments. Ginny May is aware of that. Um, so if you do take out large tax payments, considering 2019 fairly was a good year, and uh, if you have, you, you know, for this, if you're an S-Corp, you already paid in some of your extensions, but um, if you haven't yet, Ginny May will look at this um, and they are aware that, you know, that there are tax payments paid through distributions. So they will not, they will not, from what I understand is they will not hurt that. They will not hurt you. Um, and then going, you know, now focusing, going on to advances. Um, you know, I think this is important that even if you are not going to apply for PTAP, it is important to monitor your cash flows. Um, just in general, a lot of our clients are seeing, you know, large advances um, pre, uh, bigger than previous months, maybe. Uh, so, you know, even if you're not Ginny May or if you don't have even a plan to go for this, I think it is important to monitor your cash flows, monitor your advances for the future, and also review your advances. Make sure that you're not going to have a big write-off on any given quarter. You know, evaluate them monthly. See if there should be an allowance for, uh, you know, a reserve, I should say, against these advances. Something certainly to keep in mind and that I am telling my, you know, that my client and I'm helping my clients, you know, go through this analysis with them um, because in past they may have not looked at it as detailed, but now they kind of have to. So it's certainly something to also keep in mind. Um, so, you know, the and then finally, I just wanted to touch on this very, very, it's not up there, but very quickly is um, how this, well, I did say how it will impact it. Obviously, if you do get the PTAP, it's a liability. It will impact your leverage ratios. Um, but how MSRs will also uh, get valued and impact uh, the financial statements. We have a luxury of having some financial clients with financial year ends at March 31st and April 30th and even May 31st. And we are seeing that they, in general, they are lower than what they have been. So, you know, to project how your MSRs are going to be valued in the future, um, make sure you don't have one big month or a quarter where it impacts your financial statements and then maybe violates covenants or, you know, violates certain requirements set forth by banks or, you know, agencies. So certainly something to keep in mind that we are seeing MSR values come down. So, you know, if you're retaining a lot of servicing, depending on what your capitalization rate is at the point you put it on, um, you don't want to make that too high because when the, if you on the fair value method, they may come down. Uh, significantly out of if you get it valued quarterly, monthly, however, you know, you choose to do so, it may come down. So there will be a financial statement impact to that. And obviously, you don't want to be surprised, uh, per se. So, you know, I think those were the key things that I kind of wanted to touch base on that I'm seeing from my clients, as well as from the call that I've been on with 
Ginny May, and other various agencies. So I will now That's be... Cool. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Paul. Yeah, very insightful about, uh, you know, a lot of the issues kind of around forbearance scenarios and, and what Ginny May is doing with this, the PCAP <laughs> fund and positioning yourself best to be, uh, you know, qualified applicant there. Um, yeah, on that note, I want to transition it over to James here to kind of pick up a bit on the forbearance discussion as well as dovetailing into some repurchased uh, related scenarios. So James, feel free to uh, to take it away. Yeah, th thank you very much. So uh, some of what I am gonna say is going to be subject to talking about the liquidity issues that I'll leave uh, for Santo and uh, uh, you know the rest of the discussion. But you know when you were talking about uh, addressing liquidity and the pay uh, paycheck protection, uh, you know what a lot of people are very concerned about, especially with regard to the forbearance issues, which uh, from the polls that I have seen, uh, I think that approximately 50, 51% of mortgage professionals, their biggest concerns right now are what's going to happen because of these forbearances. Uh, and there's a number of different concerns there. But, you know, as of this month, you know, we're facing historic unemployment claims uh, that are associated with the pandemic. And it's likely that an unprecedented a number of borrowers uh, have been and will continue to be uh, uh, availing themselves uh, to the protections under the CARES Act. Now, based on that, uh, and we've seen that uh, the repurchase claims overall, uh, you know, uh, prior to the pandemic had really dovetailed, uh, you know, following, but, you know, the 2008 financial meltdown, uh, we've been in litigation. Uh, right now, we're still litigating uh, we've got probably another uh, 15 to 20 Lehman cases that we're litigating in and uh, dealing with out of court. Uh, we also see J.P. Morgan Chase, who is going after the RMBS loans. But all of that had started to die down quite a bit. Uh, nevertheless, because of the pandemic, because of the forbearances, uh, we are expecting a surge in the repurchase claims against originators uh, as the aggregators and the servicers. Um, are facing non-payment of debt uh, obligations and liquidity shortfalls that are resulting uh, from an increase in the residential mortgage loans that are being put into the forbearance. So given that rise, uh, the aggregators and the servicers uh, who are really responsible for advancing funds on certain types of loans uh, are going to be looking at ways to minimize and transfer their risk. They want to go ahead and say, look, uh, why should I be stuck with this particular risk? I want to go ahead and put this down uh, to those who, you know, as, as the saying goes, it rolls downhill. Uh, now, when examining the differences uh, of the problems that we faced, the monumental uh, repurchase demands that came out of the 2008 financial meltdown, and what we're looking at right now, I think that there are some comparisons and some differences, uh, some of which will give comfort to uh, the industry. Some of it won't. I, I think that there is going to be a, a massive uptick in demands at some point, but going through the comparisons briefly, uh, I think it may be short-lived and, you know, could be further uh, affected in a, a positive way, depending on what additional legislation and uh, the industry in and of itself uh, may do. Now, one of the key similarities between the, uh, the two different crises uh, was really the great level of uncertainty that we had, which, uh, you know, it's an unquantifiable risk. Uh, what are we looking at here? We had the 2008 financial meltdown. 
uh, uh, everyone was scratching their head as, as to where it was going to end. Uh, now we have the pandemic, which, you know, right now uh, uh, things are looking great. But, you know, we have some people talking about a resurgence of the pandemic. Uh, we have some people talking about, hey, we are well on our way to a recovery. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's important to take some of this with a grain of sand. So <laughs> under both crises, uh, we had a monumental shift in the unemployment figures uh, that resulted in delinquencies. Um, and we do, do not know whether we will have a U-shape as happened with regard to the financial meltdown, or we're going to have a V-shape or a W-shape. Uh, the best case we can ask for is a V-shape. You know, we had a severe decline uh, in employment. And, you know, hopefully, I mean, we did see some positive numbers recently come out. Uh, we could see a very big increase in employment and getting back to uh, the order uh, of business, you know, uh, fairly quick. I mean, granted everything that's going on. Um, nevertheless, if there is a resurgence, a second wave, that may go down again. And so uh, everything that I said with regard to this, we have to understand that there are some unknowns out there. Uh, the V-shape uh, recovery, great. W-shape uh, uh, will throw us through another loop. Uh, and could become more problematic depending upon what additional resources uh, are needed. So most economists believe that we have the V to a W, and it's not going to be like the 2008 financial meltdown. Uh, and most of the economists believe that we'll know this over the next 12 months, if not sooner, you know, uh, uh, fourth quarter of this year, first, second quarter of 2021. Um, now, even with the growing rise in unemployment and the low economic growth due to the pandemic, um, you know, the economists believe, again, with a grain of salt, that we are going to have some strong recovery here. And, you know, that will uh, bear out shortly. Um, now, they expect to see a quick reversal of the massive rise in unemployment due to the fact that most of the jobs that were lost in the last few months uh, were hourly workers. And these were also renters. Uh, which is good for the mortgage banking industry. Uh, so many may return to work fairly soon, and uh, that overall could be very good for the industry. Again, if it's mostly affecting the renters, uh, talking about the obviously the prior the the, the uh, residential side, uh, and that gives us a lot of hope. Now, right now, purchase applications, as I understand it, are down about 20% uh, below the level from a year ago. Although most of the clients I talk with are actually doing pretty good, whether it's in refis uh, or apps. And, you know, what that tells us is, hey, a lot of the people who, uh, you know, uh, 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 may have been affected, they may be doing their work from home. They may not have lost their job. They may have a decrease in their income, uh, but it's not affecting them such that they're going to go ahead and default and go delinquent, uh, as we had seen in the financial meltdown. Uh, when people, you know, lost their homes, we had uh, uh, loans that were being given out like candy uh, that had uh, uh, no requirement to verify income, assets, employment. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, and, and so there are some big differences between the 2008 financial meltdown uh, and today. Now, homes are also much more reasonably priced and uh, the rates are much lower even after the pandemic. Uh, so due to the lessons that we learned also, and I think this is a big key here from 2008, uh, you know, the, the standards, the underwriting uh, had really tightened up uh, to protect against a lot of the fraud and, that was happening back when the financial meltdown happened. We don't have that 
Uh, we will have fraud. Anytime you inject that much money into the industry and the country, there's going to be people who are going to try to take that benefit from it. Uh, and this folds in, dovetails into the repurchase related issues. Um, so with many of our clients saying that they are weathering the storm fairly well, uh, we do believe that there will be a spike in these repurchase demands that are going to come down uh, due to the forbearances, delinquencies, defaults. We've got a difference between the private label market, obviously, uh, and dealing with the GSEs and, and what have you. Now, moving over to the, the uh, CARES Act uh, under Section 4022, um, according to one study, nearly 50% of the mortgage professionals feel that the increased rate of forbearance requests uh, again, is the biggest challenge that, that uh, they're facing. Uh, more forbearance means less liquidity for lenders, which could lead to credit standards tightening, which represents the second biggest concern of the mortgage bankers who are polled uh, in a recent study. Now, along with that, uh, understanding that foreclosures normally account for about 1% of all mortgage loans, uh, as well as the fact that they were roughly a half a percent going into the pandemic, uh, we do understand that around 2008, the financial meltdown, they came to about 4%. Um, most of the people who were polled in the recent study, and I'll include this in the list of uh, 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 you know, resources that I'm going to provide to TMC for the audience here, um, you know, you'll be able to look at this for yourself. But most of the people polled think that we're going to be at around a 2 to 3% number. Uh, some of them think that we'll be back at 1%. Uh, but of course, the more the, the foreclosures happen, the more the defaults happen, delinquencies, the more we're going to see the investors uh, attempt to go ahead and push these loans back, uh, whether they do it under an EPD, FPD uh, basis, or they go ahead and uh, uh, probably what they will be doing uh, is looking for any non-compliance with the reps and warrants as a basis uh, to push these loans back. Now, under the uh, CARES Act, borrowers, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, of residential loans are, that are either insured or guaranteed uh, or owned or securitized by the GSEs, such as Fannie Freddie, uh, may request the postponement of their mortgage payments uh, for up to six months. And then that can increase up to another six months. Uh, in one of the polls that I read, most of the mortgage uh, professionals believe that even though they do have the ability to ask for up to 12 months, they thought that most people would be asking for somewhere in the neighborhood of six months. And again, there is a difference here when we're talking about the private label uh, versus the GSE and the government. Now, while the CARES Act provides substantial relief uh, to borrowers, it does not provide relief to servicers, uh, not, at least not much. Uh, such as those who service residential mortgage-backed securities and generally have an obligation uh, to advance delinquent principal and interest payments and make certain other advances uh, to ensure that their investors are um, continuing to receive payments on their investments. Uh, indeed, the Act is silent about the collateral obligations uh, for that the servicers may have uh, to the investors of these mortgage loans and other third parties. Um, after the passage of the CARES Act, relief to servicers was made available, uh, but it was really limited in nature. You know, we have Ginnie Mae uh, that announced it would be creating the pass-through assistance uh, uh, program uh, through which the servicers um, uh, who service the mortgage-backed securities and are required to remit principal and interest payments 
uh, may request that Ginny may advance the difference between available funds and the scheduled payment to investors. We also have the FHFA that announced that it's allowing GSBs to buy loans that go into forbearance, but under very limited circumstances. Uh, a loan that has been closed, uh, and this goes to a loans uh, that were closed between February 1 and May 31 and cannot be delinquent more than 30 days. And most recently, the FHFA addressed servicer liquidity uh, by announcing a four-month advance obligation limit for loans in forbearance, uh, which is great, but, you know, uh, uh, I mean, it could be 12 months uh, under the uh, CARES Act, but they limited it down to the four months. Now, this is going to incentivize the aggregators uh, and the servicers to find ways to put these loans back to you. Uh, it may not be, again, an early payment default. Um, it may not be, uh, uh, you know, uh, directly relating to the forbearance, but, you know, those are triggers in all of the LPAs that we do have. Uh, and it's, it's a very, I'd say, a strict liability type concern, but we haven't seen those coming down as of yet. And it will be interesting to see when we do. Now, the private label, we will see a lot more than we will see on the agency side. And that's kind of the opposite of where we were back in 2008, when most of the claims that we were dealing with, you know, were uh, based on the GSEs, uh, as opposed to the private label, although the private label is now making a resurgence back from 2008. Uh, but once you go ahead and you have a delinquency, um, the agencies require that it go through a quality control check. And what I've said in prior webinars uh, is that, you know, if I were an investor uh, servicer and looking at these loans, understanding the politics involved uh, when dealing with buybacks, repurchase uh, and what have you, I would be looking for any other way to push a loan back to you. That's what they're going to do. Uh, they may, uh, once we have a delinquency, once these things are in forbearance, they're going to go through a QC check. If there is an independent basis to show that there is any breach of the rep and warrant, that could very well be used and likely will be used uh, either uh, uh, by itself or maybe in tandem with some uh, uh, you know, connection to a default or delinquency ultimately when these come out of forbearance. Um, but then you have, uh, I think one example is, is really Penny Mac. And I think that uh, JP Morgan Chase, you know, in order to get these forbearances, all the borrower needs to do is attest that they have some financial hardship. Uh, they don't have to provide proof. Uh, you can't ask them for documentation to support that. Uh, and, you know, all they really need to do is say, hey, look, I need this uh, forbearance. And in some uh, areas, you may have an automatic forbearance. And this, again, can go up to 12 months. Uh, we also have some problems between what happens when the forbearance is over. Uh, on the, on the, again, with the private label market, there it's kind of like the wild, wild west. Uh, they want their money. They're not getting their money. And unless something happens uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, I think that we're going to see the results of, of all these problems um, you know, rear their heads over the next six to 12 months when these things start coming out of forbearance. Are they going to get a workout? Are they going to get a modification? Uh, are they going to be forced to go ahead and pay a lump sum, which would defeat the whole purpose of the forbearance? You know, if you're going through a forbearance, it's because you can't afford the payments. So if you're asking them for a lump sum at the end of the forbearance, 
uh, you're kind of doomed to fail there. Uh, They're not going to have the money most, uh, you know, nine out of 10 times. Uh, And so you're going to see a spike in delinquencies and defaults once these things are coming out of forbearance. But again, you have more protections uh, on the agency side under the CARES Act than you do with the private label market. Uh, And I hope to see some changes here that will happen to help insulate and mitigate uh, the concerns that are being faced by our clients, um, you know, who are saying, look, you know, uh, what am I going to go ahead and do? I've got, you know, like uh, PennyMac, one of the largest private aggregators has warned its correspondents uh, uh, that it may force uh, the originators to buy the loans back that go into forbearance within 15 days uh, of PennyMac's purchasing the claim. You have people like J.P. Morgan, I believe, requiring an attestation that you have not been uh, a a consumer has not uh, made an inquiry uh, about a forbearance, an inquiry. So now you have the problem of, okay, uh, so if a borrower calls and just asks general information about a forbearance, do I need to deal with that? Do I need to say that? Is that going to prevent you uh, from buying the loan? And, you know, we obviously have uh, uh, protections against putting in information into the closing packages to dissuade people uh, from doing forbearance. Although one of the things that we have done, uh, not necessarily to dissuade people, is to provide them information about that. We've prepared a lot of these closing package notices uh, just going over the rights, explaining what's there. Uh, it's not necessarily to dissuade if they think that, you know, the, the black and white information is is uh, something that's not looking good to them. Well, that's not necessarily to dissuade them. That's just giving them straight facts. And I think, you know, uh, doing that and letting people make intelligent decisions uh, is one way to try and mitigate uh, those harms. So PennyMax is most certainly going to be one of the aggregators making these demands, uh, in my estimation, and I've already dealt with a lot of demands from them, uh, and uh, they are very heavy on uh, pushing back uh, first payment and early payment defaults, uh, more so than I have seen with regard to a number of other investors. Um, originators and brokers you know, should not face this prospect uh, of receiving all of these indemnification demands uh, uh, relating to the forbearance, um, you know, because these, again, are being mandated for the most part under the CARES Act. Uh, but most originators and brokers, uh, you know, have faced uh, these buyback demands in the past for very little reasons. I do believe that there's some very strong defenses that can be uh, brought to head uh, if and when they do get pushback. But, you know, one of the things that you want to do, uh, let's say that you are looking at the private label side and you're saying, OK, well, I understand you have these restrictions and I understand Uh, that my culpability or liability to you may be great. So one of the things that I would recommend and I have recommended is that many of our clients go in to look over their LPAs. They look at what uh, investors they are dealing with, especially on the, again, on the private label side, uh, seeing what their policies are, you know, is it like PennyMac? Do you have to buy a loan back if it's within 15, if a, a loan goes into forbearance within 15 days of its acquisition? Uh, and you want to go ahead and try and take your portfolio of counterparties and send your loan products to those where you're going to have a better chance of reducing or minimizing your liability. You know, things you're also going to want to do, uh, which you should always do anyway, is tightening up your underwriting. You want to understand that they're going to be looking, nitpicking ways to push these loans back to you to clean up their own portfolios. 
And the best way to avoid that is to make sure that your shop is being run tip top, uh, that you are having great underwriting, that you're doing as much as you possibly can, uh, whether that is going ahead and providing other bases, uh, such as closing instructions uh, to try and connect liability to a settlement agent and a title company, uh, whether that's provide, purchasing some type of insurance uh, that may assist you if and when these demands come back. Um, now, one other issue is the refis. Uh, you know, with the refis and the rates so low, even if you do get a demand back, it may be the case that you can go ahead, get that borrower refied uh, for a payment in full and eliminate that risk. That, that, that's one of the positives. Um, otherwise, another thing that you might want to do is make another evaluation of your LPA. Uh, if you see language in there in the LPAs and seller guides that is not good for you, understanding Again, where all these forbearances are going, um, that's one thing that we would recommend negotiating. Of course, uh, how well you're able to negotiate really depends on the financial strength of your company. If you're sending two, three billion to someone, uh, they're going to make a lot more changes to the LPA than if you're sending them a pittance. So that's really it in a nutshell with regard to you know what we're seeing on the forbearance side. Uh, the differences between the private and, and uh, uh, the governmental loans, uh, some of the shortfalls that we see here, and then trying to take some steps to protect yourself. And uh, what I'll do again after this uh, uh, session is provide TMC a list of resources that will take you directly to the areas where you can read the black letter words for yourself. Uh, in addition, for any questions I'm not able to answer on this webinar, uh, if you route those through Tom and TMC, uh, as with uh, uh, my, my uh, colleagues here, uh, we will provide a follow-up FAQ to answer your questions, and uh, TMC will be able to send that over to you. So uh, I, I know it was kind of a, uh, a quick and dirty, but um, that's it. Much appreciated, James, and appreciate all the information here. Uh, on that note, I'm going to transition over right into the payroll protection program and let uh, Santo take it away. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so one of the things I just want to mention uh, in terms of the liquidity, uh, to James's point, one thing you just want to make sure of is that you you basically model out your cash flow for the next six months to track and see where you're you know where you're going to cross the red line. Uh, especially when it comes to, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, at your MSR portfolio uh, and as well as um, from the forbearance and buyback perspective, I think, you know, increasing your loan loss reserve uh, will help manage your balance sheet and your P&L, uh, knowing that these forbearances are going to play a part in, uh, in buybacks and so forth. So um, <clears throat> with that, um, I'm just going to go into... Uh, I'm just going to go into the PPP. Uh, I know this has been a very hot topic. There's been a lot on it, um, and there's been massive changes or enough changes that just comes out uh, that came out uh, last week. Uh, but one of the things I want to I want to address is that this is still a moving target. Um, it seems like we're getting more clarity. And for the balance of uh, this call, I'm going to focus on a lot of the forgiveness piece and also the changes that have taken place. So on Wednesday of last week, 
um, there was uh, an, uh, the Senate voted uh, to approve uh, some several uh, concerns and changes in the payroll protection program. And on June 5th, the president signed off on it. So this is uh, basically into law as we speak. And uh, I'm going to just briefly discuss them. Uh, one is the payroll expenditure requirement. Uh, and originally, uh, you had to have 75% uh, payable on payroll cost. Uh, we'll go into what makes up payroll cost a little later. And also, uh, the 25% could be for rent utilities and other, other costs that were allowed. Uh, they've now changed it where 60% uh, it now it, it changed, I should say, that when it lowered from 75% to 60%, uh, now what needs to be spent on payroll cost, and they're allocating that 40% could be uh, rent utilities and the like. But there's a little caveat in there, and you must really be careful. It's basically a cliff. So uh, before, under the old, if you didn't meet the 75% and you were less than that, part of your loan would be forgiven. It would be a mathematical computation. Now, uh, it's basically saying, okay, there's 60%, but if you don't meet the 60%, your entire loan will not be forgiven. Okay, so it's like an all or nothing. I do, I do believe we should expect to see changes in this area. I don't think that was the general intent, but I just want to make everyone aware of that change. Um, the other big change was the, uh, the spend period. Uh, before, you, you had to spend the proceeds uh, in an, in an eight week period from the time that the loan was funded. Uh, now that's been extended to 24 weeks. Okay. Which is going to be a big help. And I'm sure that a lot of loans now will be, uh, in a better position to be forgiven, uh, than not, uh, before that change. Um, they also, uh, gave extended the, um, the, uh, to restore the workforce. Uh, from eight weeks to 24 weeks as well. Um, before the workforce, you had to restore your pre-pandemic uh, workforce uh, by June 30th of 2020. That's now been extended to December 31st of 2020. So um, in terms of headcount, uh, and, and when you're looking at the calculation of forgiveness on the PPP. Um, one of the other changes that is significant is that for any amount that's forgiven, under the old, it was a 1% interest rate over 24 months. It's now going to be uh, 1%, but they're going to uh, rate it over five years now. So it's now 60 months. So these are all positive changes for the businesses. The one thing that crossed this morning but has not been uh, finalized yet is they're saying that any loan uh, that was given uh, less than 150,000. That there may that there is not going to be a need to file a uh, PPP application for forgiveness. But that again is not finalized yet. But that's something that uh, that just uh, came out. So um, <clears throat> there is um, you know there was a lot of questions. I'm going to gear this uh, more for the IMB uh, since this is who's primarily on the call. Uh, you know, with respect to some of the concerns that a lot of my clients had in the beginning um, is uh, basically the uh, two issues. One was uh, documenting the economic uncertainty at the time of application that was attested to. And the other one was, uh, you know, are we really eligible for the loan since we have, it, it states in the, uh, uh, the SBA SOP 50, 
that um, certain industries were precluded from applying for this loan and lenders, but there was a uh, exception in there is if you t if you were able to sell your loans uh, within 14 calendar days. And that's been a lot of the challenge. And I think from an audit perspective, uh, I think uh, most people on this call probably received in excess of $2 million, which so you will be prepared to be audited. And I think uh, the, the, the two big hurdles uh, to, uh, that's going to that's have to come across on this is one is going to be documenting your 14-day and some suggestions around that, about 14 calendar days. Then it doesn't mention in the guidance that it's, uh, is it an average? Is it a specific time frame? So I would, I would work with, your, uh, with the warehouse lenders uh, as well as your uh, loan origination software to determine and look at you know, different periods prior to the application that your, uh, that your average turn time or dwell time on your line from funding to sale is uh, 14 days or less and uh, really scrub those loans and make sure um, that you, yeah, you meet that exception. Um, if there's an issue where you're a little bit over that 14-day period, my suggestion is if you carve out, and sometimes it's you know, only a handful or maybe 100 loans throughout the year that you have issues with that, that really move that average up, I would look to document that and, and show that that was just a, uh, you, you know, uh, not the norm and that the normal practice is we do originate and sell within 14 calendar days. Um, as far as the, uh, you know, addressing the, um, the economic uncertainty at the time of application from the liquidity perspective, I just think that, uh, you know, you need to document and I would do it sooner than later. We all know what occurred in March at the end of March, where we had the aggregated pricing uh, upside down, the margin calls, the aggregated pricing was terrible. You were, for the first time that I can remember, on both ends, it was negative, both on the pricing and also on your, uh, on your securities. So uh, I think documenting all that, showing the uh, cash flows that, uh, that, have, you know, that came out of your bank accounts, during those margin call periods and not recouping that margin, I think would definitely be something uh, that should be docu documented uh, for the economic uncertainty. And once you, once you get by uh, those two uh, levels uh, or, or those two uh, milestones, I should say, I think at that point that uh, the rest is just mathematics. Um, so just wanted to bring that out for uh, to, to, to all of you there. So I did, uh, you know, Tom's going to fire out some Q&As. We'll see how much time we have left. Um, for, for anyone that uh, is interested more uh, in, in specific about the PPP, you know, just reach out to TMC. They'll make sure I get the information. I will respond. So Tom, if you want to maybe go through and fire these uh, Q&As as quickly as possible, um, that may help. You got it, Santa. We'll jump right into it. And if we don't get to all of them, our attendees, so you know, as part of your follow-up, we'll get an itemized list with all these questions with answers that uh, ACS has provided for us. Um, so, Santa, if you're okay, I'm going to jump a couple in here because I feel like kind of uh, touched on a few of these first couple um, in, in your responses you just provided. Um, the fifth question laid out, I guess, you know, on the the health insurance and retirement expenses, you know, are those included in the hundred thousand dollar annualized limit per employee? No, those pay those are those costs are not included in um, 
you know, when, when calculating your forgiveness, it's not part of the hundred. It's, it's, it's a, it's the hundred thousand limit plus an add on to that. So, uh, it's not, it's not in that hundred thousand dollar, um, limit. Annualized limit, I should say. Excellent. Okay. And then, on the payroll side, is payroll incurred but paid after the end of the eight-week period, which is now 24 weeks? Uh, is that eligible for the loan forgiveness? So, so now they, uh, w- when they came out with the first changes before last week, they did change it. Originally, it was only going to be on a cash basis where you had, uh, from the time you were funded, you had eight weeks basically to run your payroll cycle and make your payments. So if you had a payroll period in there that was prior to the funding date, uh, even though it was prior, uh, uh, prior services prior to that, you were able to include that, uh, but you weren't able to accrue or pay as, as incur. But now that's been changed. So any, so, uh, any, any payroll that would end at the end of your period, your 24-week period, if that's paid in the following week, that would be also included in the forgiveness application now. So that, that's an important distinction. Got it. And then, so is there any extent, uh, exemption to restore their full-time employee headcount? Um, yeah, so, so the exception is if you restore your full-time employee headcount, um, originally before it was by June 30, but now they've extended to December 31st, 2020. You don't have to worry about when, you know, when the actual forgiveness application of, uh, of allocating your full-time employee headcount. Uh, you know, there's two, there's two, uh, levels or barometers that they're using and you get to pick which one you want in terms of your full-time equivalent periods. One, uh, was either from February, uh, 15th of 2019 to June 30th of 2019 to calculate your full-time equivalent there, or uh, uh, January 1st, 2020 to February 29th, 2020. And obviously, you'd want to pick your average full-time equivalents uh, in the whichever was lower. So that's what you'd have to restore uh, by now December 31st in order Got to it. in order to have it fully excluded. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then will PPP, or I'm sorry, will expenses paid by PPP be tax deductible? So interesting, uh, I, you know, they say that the that the loan itself is not going to be includable as income. However, any expenses that you are paying with the PPP money uh, is not going to be allowed to be deductible as it is right now. Um, so in essence, your your forgiveness loan is going to be taxable because if they're not allowing you to deduct the uh, the, the expenses, certainly the loan in, in, by default is taxable. The forgiveness part Got of the it. loan. Okay. And then I guess last question here as we're running short on time, uh, related because there's a lot of um, you know, influx, I think, as in the employment side right now. Um, you know, this question here, if an employee voluntarily quits, would the employer have to replace he or she uh, by June 30th, which now is December 31st, to match the total employee account for the PPP loan forgiveness? So if that if that person voluntarily quits, um, you don't have to worry about uh, you know worry you know worry about um, uh, replacing that for the it will not count in the full time equivalent. If you let someone go for cause, on the other hand. Um, you know, that's not going to count either. But again, you need to document and make sure that 
that you, you offered them to come back to work and they declined it. And, and that will not be part of your uh, FTE or full-time equivalent calculation. Got it. Okay. Well, gentlemen, attendees, I apologize that we've plenty so much to cover here and it seems like never enough time. So we will definitely make sure all these questions with the full responses from ACS are incorporated as part of the follow-up. Also, we'll have some additional collateral, both from ACS as well as Johnston Thomas. But uh, Paul, Santo, James, I want to thank you each again for your time today. Extremely insightful. And as always, want to thank our members for uh, attending today's discussion. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, yeah, you, thank you. Appreciate that. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.